Don't know what I'm going to say now. Chris preached my... <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> it was great. I want to invite you to open this morning to Genesis, um, and we will be looking at passages in both Genesis 1 and 2. And as you're turning there, let me just briefly ask the Lord to bless our time. Lord, we want to humble ourselves before your word. We want to acknowledge you as our creator. We want to live as you would have us live. And so we commit ourselves to your care in Christ's name. Amen. We've been looking at Genesis 1 and 2 the last couple of weeks, and we've been uh, thinking about how the beginning of your story, your story of origins, where you think you came from, how that determines so much about how you, how you think of who you are, how you uh, construe in your own imagination your identity, and what you understand yourself to be here for, and how you understand yourself to relate to others. And this morning, we're going to think in particular about what Genesis 1 and 2 shows us about the very good beginning of all things when God made them in his image, in his own image, Genesis 1:27. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Uh, but before we plunge into what the Bible teaches, I just want to tell you briefly about this account in this, this uh, piece called um, The Works and Days of an Ancient Greek Poet Named Hesiod. And the reason, the reason I'm telling you about this, I think, will become evident as we, as we think together about it. In this story, you know, we, we, we thought a few weeks ago about how uh, if, if you live in a world of violence and you live in a world where people's sexual passions have become violent, you imagine, if, unless you have divine revelation, you imagine that the gods are like you are. And this explains ancient Near Eastern mythology, and it explains ancient Greco-Roman mythology. And if you live in a world in which women are largely oppressed and in which women are largely devalued, there, there will be similar kinds of imaginations about where women came from. For Hesiod, he tells this story about how when the gods, who were not favorably disposed to men, uh, they did not want men to have fire, but then this titan named Prometheus, he stole fire and gave it to man. And Zeus was really unhappy about this. And so what Zeus did was he got the other gods together and he came up with a plan. And this is what he says. He says, I will give men as the price for fire an evil thing. He calls it evil in which they may all be glad of heart while they embrace their own destruction. And then his plan is to have all of the gods come together. So Hephaestus is in on this, and uh, Athena is in on this, and Hermes is in on this, and uh, several others are, are involved. They all come together, and what they do, uh, he has Hest Hephaestus mix earth with water and put in it the voice and strength of humankind and fashion a sweet, lovely maiden shape. But then the, one of the other gods is going to put into her a shameless mind and a deceitful nature because she's evil. It's an evil gift that man is meant to embrace to his own destruction in this account of where women came from. 
And then when he gives the gift, he called this, he, call, he, he gives it as woman. So this is the account of, in, in Greek mythology of, of how, how we got womankind. And it's not hard to imagine, is it, that if that's your account, your philosophers, everybody from Thales, Thales said this, what I'm about to recount. Socrates is said to have uh, repeated this line which also comes to us on the lips of Plato, and then it's all reaffirmed by Aristotle. This is what they say. They thanked fortune for three things. First, that I'm a human and not a beast. Second, that I'm a man and not a woman. Third, that I'm a Greek and not a barbarian. So there's sexism and racism right there in Greek mythology and Greek philosophy for you. Well, that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach either sexism or racism. Look with me at, at Genesis 1.27. The Bible affirms this glorious reality that male and female are created in the image and likeness of God. Now, I just want to say one word about Genesis 1.27 here and then think with you briefly about Genesis 2. And then we'll look in particular at the features of Genesis 2 that, that also point to the way that God has made male and female. So what I want to say about Genesis 127 has to do with the terms used at the end of the verse when it says God created man in his own image. It starts out singular, man. In the image of God, he created him. But then it goes plural, male and female, he created them. And what's interesting th about this is that in Hebrew, you have several different words, at least three words, used for man in Genesis 1 and 2. Um, this is the first one. This Hebrew term is zakar. And then this other word, ish, is going to be used. And it's from the word ish that isha is going to be uh, is developed, isha being woman, uh, ish being man. And then a another word, adam, is going to be used, and Adam is, is a word that means man, but it's clearly related to the word for ground, Adama, from which the man is, is made. And it's almost like he's made from the ground, so we're going to call him a word that sounds like ground, almost as though he's being referred to as the grounder or the earthling. And then the woman is made from the man, and so she's going to be uh, referred to by a word that sounds like man. So ish, and then the feminine form of that is isha. Well, here we've got a term, zakar, that is actually used in modern Hebrew in a phrase that, I just want to put it this way, that is used to refer to male anatomy. It, you know, in, in our language, we sometimes, we have plumbing parts that are sometimes referred to as a male part and a female part because of the ways that these parts relate. And that's the kind of terms that are used, those are the sorts of terms that are used here in Genesis 1.27. It's almost as though these plumbing parts are being uh, words that are, are intrinsically reflecting the anatomical design of the male and the female are being used here in Genesis 1.27. So it's, it's both gloriously complementary and uh, very specific in terms of what God has done here. I want to return to Genesis 1.27 when we get down to Genesis 2.24 and 25. We'll come back to it then. At this point, uh, the last two weeks, you know, we looked at how God created in the beginning uh, the first week. And then the second week, 
we looked at what it is that we are made in the image and likeness of God, and we looked at how God built the world as a cosmic temple, and then he put man as the living image of himself into the temple. And now I want to think with you um, in particular about what Genesis 2, and a little bit from Genesis 1, presents to us about what it is that God made us male and female. So uh, first, just briefly on the question how Genesis 2 and Genesis 1 relate. Uh, what I want to propose to you is that in Genesis 1, Moses has a certain literary purpose. He's going to present the creation day by day. It's chronologically ordered, you know, there was evening and there was morning the first day. There was evening, there was morning the second day, and so forth. And, and so it's like Moses is looking at the, the creation from a certain perspective. In Genesis 2, it's like what he does. He says, he says okay, we've looked at it from that angle. Now what's going to happen if we come at it this way and we look at it from this angle? And, and if we were to do that, if we had cameras that could do that we would have a totally different perspective. We might call it a kaleidoscopic. I think that's a good word. It's a kaleidoscopic perspective on the creation. And in, in going back to the beginning and returning through it, we could say that it's a recursive uh, a, a pre presentation. So in other words, it's repeating the same thing. And as, as I was reading on this this week, I came across an, an argument or, or at least a suggestion by a guy named Alice, Alistair um, Roberts, who, who proposed a certain way to think about Genesis 1 and 2 that I'd like to just put before you. So Genesis 1, 1 and 2 presents to us the heavens and the earth without form and void, and darkness is over the surface of the deep. And then if you look at Genesis 2, 4 through 6, look there, it says, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. So if in Genesis 1 we had this day-by-day -day thing, in Genesis 2 it's like we're going to treat this all as one day. We're going to look at it from a different angle, so to speak. Verse 5, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. So as with 1, 1, and 2, we've got no plants, we've got no, no, nothing growing, we've got no man, and there's earth that is covering the ground as a, as a mist. Well then, in day 1, in chapter 1, what God makes is light. And then the first thing he makes in Genesis 2, Genesis 2, 7, then the Lord, Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. So the first thing he makes in Genesis 1 is light. First thing he makes in Genesis 2 is man. I want to propose to you a kind of connection here and, and uh, you just be a Berean and go think about this. Look at what the Lord says in um, Genesis 1 verse 16. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And then again in verse 18, to rule over the day and to separate the light from the darkness. And then when he makes man, the first thing he says about man in Genesis 1.26 is, 
Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So like the lights, the man is made to rule. Um, and, and looking at it from this, this angle, uh, day two, what God does is he separates the waters above from the waters below and he makes the firmament between. And then the next thing God does in Genesis 2 after making the man, the ruler, is he makes the garden. And it's, it, you can think of the garden, I think you'd be thinking of it rightly, as a kind of model of God's own sanctuary in heaven. So Genesis 2.8, the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So um, God makes the firmament, the heaven, names it heaven, God makes the garden. Day three, God gathers the waters together, and he, this is the third day, he does two things. He gathers the water, causes the gathered water seas, and then he causes the vegetation to spring up on the dry lands. Well, what God does next in Genesis 2, having, having made the man, where he made the light in ch chapter 1, and then having, um, having made the, the model of the heavenly sanctuary, where he made the firmament in chapter 1, now what he's going to do is he's going to make the waters into rivers and he's going to fill the garden with trees and vegetation. So verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. And then we read on about the rivers through verse 14 and the stuff about the trees is in verse 9 there. Uh, day 4, God put the lights there to rule the day. Look at 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And then God gives commands concerning what he can eat. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day you eat of it you shall surely die. And then um, days five and six, what God made were all the animals, and then, and then he made man in his image. And now here in chapter 2, in verses 19 through uh, 20, God is going to make all the animals, and then he's going to make the woman. And then there's, there's a kind of correspondence between 2, 1 to 3, where the Lord rests in having completed his work, and then 2, 24 and 25, where the man and his wife are naked and they have no shame. Uh, it, it, it seems to me that there is a valid kind of a different angle of the same events, and, and it's an interesting perspective in chapter 2 on the creation, and it sets it up so that God has made the man, and then perhaps in chapter 2, it's as though the man can watch God do the rest of the creating, and then finally the woman is brought onto the scene. Well, let's think together about what this chapter presents to us about man and woman. Let me draw your attention to verse 7, where we read in Genesis 2, 7, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became, the living, the man became a living creature. Uh, the first thing to note here, I think, is the word formed. It's the word that, that is used to describe what a potter does with clay. 
elsewhere in the Old Testament. So the way that God built the man was he took dust from the ground, and then he did with that dust what uh, a potter does. So in terms of the material, it's dust from the ground. In terms of the method, it's what a potter does with his, with his material on the wheel. And look at the difference between that and the creation of the woman down in verse 22, where we read, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made, and if you're looking at the ESV like I am, you've got a footnote on that word made, and down in the lower margin, which if you're like me, you're going to need reading glasses to read, down in the lower margin, it says, or Hebrew built. Um, he built into a woman and brought her to the man. So in terms of the material, it's not dust from the ground. It's the rib of the man. In terms of the method, it's not forming like a potter does on the wheel. It's building. And this word is used to describe what stonemasons do, what carpenters do. So it starts with a different material, and it proceeds with a different method. So there are differences. There are created differences between male and female. If you're a believer in the Bible, the Bible is telling you that God made male and female differently. That's one of those things that is so obvious to our observation that it's hard not to see. And, and I feel like I'm being sort of pedantic and unnecessarily basic in pointing it out. But in our culture, these are the kinds of observations that could get you fired at work. These are the kinds of observation that will get you removed from a board of directors if you, if you go around pointing out that there are actually differences between males and females. But the Bible is saying, look, this is the way it is. This is reality. And so I just want to, if you're a, if you're a Bible-believing person, I want to encourage you that the scriptures are on the side of what you actually see with your eyes. There are real differences between men and women. There are real differences in the way they're made and in what they're made from. And those differences get worked out in, in all kinds of ways. It's like I read one author this week, uh, Bobby Jameson, he likened it to food coloring in water. The way, that, the way that food coloring goes into water and just diffuses all through the water, that's the way your maleness or your femaleness colors everything about you. Your aptitudes, your inclinations, your appetites, your preferences, it's all touched by the way that God has created us, male and female. And then look at the difference in purpose for which God made the male and the female. Look at verse 15 again. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. We talked about the priestly overtones of this last week, how Adam is doing in the garden, what the Levites did at the tabernacle, and this adds a kind of priestly overtone to Adam's responsibilities in the garden. We talked about how, uh, I don't, maybe we talked about it, we can talk about it now, in working the garden, what Adam's going to be doing is providing. He, he's presumably doing things like tilling the soil, cultivating certain plants, making it so that the fruit trees grow fruit and the corn stalks get harvested when they need to and the potatoes get dug up out of the ground when they need to so that people can eat. He's providing 
is what he's doing. He's working the ground. So there's a, a created function here of making the ground productive that Adam is to engage in. And then he's not only working it, but he's also keeping it. And I mentioned last week how I think one of his responsibilities was to make it so that the boundaries of the garden are secure against the infiltration of snakes who might want to lead the woman into sin. So he's, he's got a responsibility to protect. So, you know, sometimes people will say that a man's responsibilities include provision and protection. And I would argue that these are created realities. If you are a man in the room, you were built to provide and to protect. It's part of the way that God structured you. It's, it's the purpose for which he created you. And then there's a different created purpose for the woman. Look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Entirely different stated purpose for the creation of the woman. The man needs a helper who is fit for him. And, you know, we can, we can put together the different things said in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and we can see that um, the man, he's, he's made from the ground, he's, so he's Adam, the ground is Adama, he's Adam, and the woman is made from the man, he's Ish, she's Isha, and, and it's almost like there's this correspondence between the terminology that Moses is using and the purpose for which the the male and the female are created, and the jobs that they're given to do. There's a, there's a glorious harmony to it all. I read a couple of different authors this week who spoke of, of the way that we should think of, of male and female as different voices in a symphony singing together. That's, that's the way that God has, has built this. And it's not as though we're to uh, conceive of our differences as as things that we're competing with, an, with one another in respect to, but rather that these are gifts that, that are given to us for the benefit, the mutual benefit of one another, our differences. And, and if you think about what happens when God makes, what God makes the woman from, and then what happens when God makes the woman and brings her to the man, look down at verse Verses 22 and 23. The rib that the Lord God had made, taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So, verse 18, it's not good for the man to be alone. And then God takes a bone from the man and builds it into the woman. And the man says, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And there's a bone deep level at which the woman is made to foster community, communion between male and female. That's one aspect of the help. The help is the companionship and the communion that's created and I would suggest that women are so much better at than men. I mean, guys, guys are, at least, in, I mean, typically, you know, guys are perfectly happy to be alone working on a project. 
And, and so, you know, um, my wife could say to me, don't you like it when we're all together as a family? And I might say, I like that because it makes you happy. <laughs> I'd be perfectly happy sitting in a room by myself reading on a night alone. But what she prefers is for every member of the family to all, and that's so good for all of us, but we just have different preferences. If, if, she, if we are both presented with an opening in the schedule, her inclination is going to go one way, and it's toward creating communion among, amongst all the members of our family. My inclinations are going to be toward all these tasks that I have that are before me that need attention. We're, we're, we're different, and it's, it's all good. It's good for us. So if, if, if roles of men include leading, and I'll get to that in just a second, providing and protecting, roles of women include things like helping, and fostering communion. And then here I want to pull in from the Apostle Paul, uh, from what he said there in 1 Corinthians eleven seven, 7, when he said, this is a remarkable statement, he said, for man is the glory of God and woman is the glory of man. And I would suggest that the kind of help and communion that women add to situations results in glory. So that, so that one, one created purpose of God in making women was to make it so that they would glorify the world. And isn't that the case? I mean, I don't know about you, but if I were decorating a room, what I would want in the room would be bookshelves. And what my wife brings to the room are things like curtains and candles and lamps. And everything's so beautiful when she gets done with it. And, and I, I think this is the way that God intended things to go. For me, everything's functional. For her, there's a concern for glory and beauty and, and, and f making the room feel warm, like a home where people actually want to be with one another. It's a glorious thing. So we are different, different in the way that we're made, different in the purposes for which God made us, and we're made to work together. We're made to work together. Um, but before I, I get to the work together part, let me, let me draw your attention to 2.17 again. And I'm not going to read the verse. I just want to note that that's where the prohibition is stated. And the woman has not yet been created. And so the woman is going to have to have the prohibition communicated to her by the man. And there's the leadership component. The man is created to lead. And this includes spiritual leadership, brothers. So... If you are a man, you need to be thinking in terms of, in various ways in my life, I need to be exercising spiritual leadership. If you are a married man, you need to be thinking in terms of, it is my responsibility to lead my family spiritually. I need to ensure that my kids are going to be exposed to the Word of God. I need to ensure that my wife is set up to, to have time in the Word of God. I need to be sure that our family is headed in a certain direction. And, and I think leadership involves not only direction, but also attitude and, and sort of atmosphere. So guys, I mean, I, I heard a friend of mine say this a long time ago. It, it's our job to say, this is where we're going. This is how we're going to get there, and it's going to be great. We're going to have a great time together doing this. 
we're, we're, we're all moving toward Christ-likeness. And the way that we're going to get there is we're going to regularly be in the Word of God together. We're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. We're going to, we're going to live together, and we're going to have a fabulous time together. This is going to be a great family. This is a great family. It's our responsibility to create a positive attitude. And for the ladies, for the ladies, you're made to help, to add glory, to add this concern for communion that men so easily forget. And also, and here I want to bring in Genesis 128, which we've not yet looked at. Uh, it's also the lady's responsibility with the man to be fruitful and multiply. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now, the, I'm going to illustrate this. I, uh, I had my son get out for me their flint and steel. So flint and steel, right? Well, if I take two pieces of steel and I strike these things together, I'm, I could do this all day and I'm never going to get a spark. I could take two pieces of flint and I could strike these together and I could do that all day and I'm never going to get a spark. But if I take the flint and the steel, my kids, my, my son is so embarrassed. I think this is the best part of the sermon, don't you? <laughs> I promise, Matt, I'm not going to set your music on fire. If I take the flint and the steel... Look at that. Isn't that cool? <laughs> Look at that. That's awesome. If you take a male and a female, life results. Life results. They can actually be fruitful and multiply. God created male and female to be fruitful and multiply. And you will not get fruitful, you will not get multiply if you don't have male and female. You can ask the doctors in the room. It ain't going to happen. You, you don't have to be a doctor to know that. It will not happen. So God made us different, but we have to work together. There, there's, there's so much that we could say about this. There's so much I need to say about this, I'm just going to blame Chris for having prayed so long that I don't have time to say it. Sorry, Chris, I'm just ripping on you here. I love you, brother. It's, it's amazing when you if, you, if you, if you think about these things, you can almost compare, almost, I'm, I'm kind of qualifying this, you can almost identify, and here again, I'm kind of following Alistair Roberts and some statements that he made, you can almost identify the man's work with the first three days of creation, because what God does is he, he, he uh, generates things, and he names those things, and then he divides those things, and he rules over those things. And then in the second three days of creation, remember we talked about the work of forming in the first three days and then the filling in the second three days? The second three days, you get the filling, the glorifying. Imagine, imagine if the skies didn't have birds if the land didn't have the animals roaming across it, if the seas didn't have all the fish, it would be a lot less glorious. Uh, establishing communion and bringing forth new life. It's in those second three days that the, the living creatures are brought forth. So that there's a kind of, again, correspondence between what the man is made to do and what the woman is made to do and the way that God made the world. It's like it's built into the world. Alistair Roberts writes this, Although both sexes participate in both tasks, exercising dominion and being fruitful, um, those two things, exercising dominion and being fruitful, are not tasks 
that equally play to male and female capabilities, but rather are tasks where sexual differentiation is usually particularly pronounced. In the task of exercising dominion and subduing creation, the man is advantaged. In the task of being fruitful and multiply and filling the creation, however, the most important capabilities belong to women. It's women who bear children, who play the primary role in nurturing them, and who play the chief role in establishing the communion that lies at the heart of human society. And these are differences that can be seen across human cultures. Let me, before we conclude, let me, let me draw your attention to, to the way that in this situation, before sin enters the world, before God speaks words of judgment over the world, and, the, and the, the words of judgment are going to correspond to the created role. So the, the woman is going to have her created role of bearing children made more difficult, and her created role of helping the man made more difficult. The man is going to have his created role of tilling the ground made more difficult. Now, it's not as though, it's not as though being a man is just about being a farmer, or being a woman is just about having babies. I'm not saying that. Please don't hear me saying that. But there is a fatherly way in which we're all as males to conduct ourselves. You know, Paul could say of Onesimus became, becoming a Christian, I became a father to him. And Paul could say of uh, Rufus's mother, she was a mother to me as well. So there are fatherly and motherly ways that we conduct ourselves that, don't, that aren't strictly limited to having babies and nurturing those babies. So there's a lot more that could be said about that, but I just don't want you to hear me saying that's all it boils down to. It's, it, it's really, again, like the food coloring in the water. It's pervasive. But let me draw your attention to the way that in the Garden of Eden, before sin, before words of judgment, there's authority here. And, and as, Paul, as Paul articulates in 1 Corinthians 11, the man was made first. And then um, in 1 Timothy 2, he, he, what he's doing there is he is making explicit in his prohibitions and direct statements some things that are implicit in the way that God made the world and from the way that the making of the world is described here. So in Genesis 1, God makes... And then he names. Genesis 1, verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And then he keeps doing that. Well, in Genesis 2, God makes these animals, and he brings them to the man to see what he will call them. And whatever the man called the animal, that was its name. And what's happening is the man is exercising God's authority over God's creation. And the same thing happens with the woman. God makes the woman, brings him to the man, and he says, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the man exercises, I, I, I would encourage you to try to imagine this, an authority that is not in any way tinged with sin, a, a dominion that is not in any way tinged with anything that's oppressive, anything that might be characterized as colonizing, it is altogether pure. It is, it is so glorious and beautiful 
that these two people can be naked and unashamed, according to verse 25. And this means that neither one of them fears the other in any way. Neither one of them has any suspicion that they are going to be looked at in a way they don't want to be looked at, that they might be mocked, that they might be taken advantage of, that they might be exploited somehow. There's a perfect innocence and harmony and glorious beauty in, in the uninhibited, open, unhindered intimacy between the man and the woman. And there is a hierarchy of authority that is reflected here. I want to conclude this, this morning by uh, relating to you some statements from a piece that Rosaria Butterfield wrote called How Psalm 113 Changed My Life. Maybe you're familiar with Rosaria and her story. And this piece was recently published in a Nine Marks uh, um, e-journal on complementarianism, which I would commend that to your attention. There's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, there there's a, there's a, a good review essay by Bobby Jameson. There, there, this piece by Alistair Roberts that I've made reference to was in that journal. And, and then there's this testimony from Rosaria Butterfield, and she recounts how when she was just in the process of being drawn to faith in Jesus, she still had a butch haircut. She was still identifying as not only a feminist but a lesbian. And she went to church one day, and she was attracted enough to the gospel to want to sing along. And they were, they were actually going to sing Psalm 113, which we used in our call to worship this morning. And she says that before she, this is a quote, before I realized what was coming out of my mouth, I sang the last lines of the psalm and implicated myself into what I believed then was hateful patriarchy and institutionalized misogyny. And the line that she sang, she says, the crescendo verse brought praise to a halt for me. I choked mid-verse, and here's the line, paraphrase of Psalm 113, the verse 9, he the childless woman takes and a joyful mother makes. Keeping house, she finds reward. Praise Jehovah. Praise the Lord. And she speaks of, of, about how she reacted to that from, from her set of uh, presuppositions and her worldview and, and, and how offensive and shocking this was to her. And uh, you, can, you can read her testimony. She uses some pretty strong language about how she reacted to this. And, and she tells of how um, what, what happened was she started to ask the pastor's wife. And the pastor's wife didn't apologize for this. This is what the Bible teaches. And then she asked the elders' wives. And they didn't apologize for it either. either. This is what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches this beautiful complementarity between male and female. A complementarity that you can see in... Genesis 1.28, that's reaffirmed in Genesis 2.24, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast with his wife, and they shall become one flesh. It's, it's reiterated by Jesus in Matthew 19, when, when he says, he, at the beginning he made them male and female, and said, talking about God, said, the two shall become one flesh. And gradually, she, she writes, she says, I beheld the dignity of this verse. She's talking about Genesis 1.27. That both men and women derive their image from God, not from each other. I beheld how far short my own feminist worldview stood in relation to God's word. And, and she goes on. To, it's, it's really a, a good article. Um, 
But if you're, if you're not familiar with her story, it's 21 years later, and she recounts how along the way, the Lord, she writes, he gave me another desire to be a godly wife to a godly husband, to submit to him as a helper to him in his work, and if God willed, to be a mother to our children. And this woman, who was a tenured professor of English and women's studies at the University of Syracuse, is now a homeschooling mother who teaches her children and writes uh, these wonderful Christian books that you, many of you have probably uh, seen or, or read. It, it's, it's glorious what the Lord has done. She writes, 21 years ago, I railed against the patriarchy, seeing submission of any kind as violence and a recipe for abuse. Today, I believe with all of my heart and mind that the only safe place in the world for a woman is as a member of a Bible-believing church, protected and covered by God through the means of faithful elders and pastors, and if God wills, a godly husband. It, it, it's, it's wonderful what the Lord has done in her life. Uh, bear with me for one moment while I make application to us. And I just have an application for the women in the room, two applications, and some applications for the men in the room. For the women, relish the way that God made you. Recognize and enjoy your unique aptitudes, opportunities, and responsibilities. And don't let the culture convince you that in order for you to be valuable, you have to do what a man does. The culture's trying to tell you that. Culture's trying to say to you, in order for you to be valuable, you need to be a CEO. In order for you to be valuable, you need to make lots of money, as much money as men make. In, and on and on and on it goes. They're subtly communicating, if you were really valuable, you could play baseball. If you were really valuable, you could play football. That's what their assumptions are communicating. Don't let them tell you their lies. Relish the way God made you and recognize and enjoy your unique aptitudes, your unique opportunities, and your unique feminine responsibilities to the men in the room. If I ever, even jokingly, hear any of you say something like, thank God he made me a man and not a woman, you can expect me to get in your face. We better not have any of that here. None of that here. And if that's an inclination of yours, it needs to stop right now. Never again. You honor and you appreciate the glory of women. To the ladies, I want to encourage you to embrace and encourage Christ-like, fatherly male headship. Embrace and encourage self-sacrificial, leading, providing, and protecting. To the men, make sure your leading, providing, and protecting is Christ-like, God-honoring, and self-sacrificial. Make sure your leading, providing, and protecting is Christ-like, God-honoring, and self-sacrificial. If we, if we get that in order, we will all be agreed that abuse has nothing to do with complementarianism. Abuse is not patriarchy. Abuse is an abandonment of patriarchy because fundamental to patriarchy is the father, that's where we get this word pater, patri, 
The father is supposed to protect those under his care. And anyone who abuses has ceased to protect. And he's now exploiting or doing violence again. That, that's not what complementarianism is, and that's not what patriarchy is. Let's pray together. Father, I know that so much more needs to be said about these passages, and it could be said so beautifully. And Lord, I know that the truth that's here could be lived so much more lovingly and effectively, pervasively for all of us. Lord, we just bring ourselves to you and cry out to you for your help to cause your word to do for us what it did for the world, to call what does not exist into existence. Lord, you alone can do this. You alone can make us those who are eager to, to create a, a glorious symphony, to make music together out of these things that are so sometimes difficult and contested. Lord, I pray that you give us confidence in your word, that we would believe that it tells us the truth. I pray that you'd give us humility before it, that we would conform all of our ways of thinking and ways of talking to it. And then, Lord, I pray that you would make your glory shine through men who protect and provide and lead and women who fill and beautify and glorify and cause communion. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your goodness to us. We don't deserve it. We worship you for Jesus. We thank you for the way that he showed both men and women what it is to live. We pray all this in his name. Amen.